Well, good morning, everyone. Oh, man. So we are in an incredibly exciting journey here at Mosaic Church. If you've been around at all, you know that we are traveling uh, through this incredible letter uh, that Paul is writing to the church in Rome. Uh, we know it as the book of Romans. Uh, we've been traveling with Paul on his missionary journeys, and he is currently writing a letter to the church in Rome to prepare the way for his transition from Antioch to Rome as his home base. And so this book he is unpacking in extraordinary beauty all the simplicity and complexity of the redemptive story of God that we know as the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so uh, over the last few months as we've spent time in the early part of this book, uh, what we have discovered so far that Paul is unpacking for the church in Rome and uh, through that also then for us is this, this uh, picture of uh, what our life is uh, in our human experience and why it is we struggle so much uh, with the realities of our internal motives and our external behaviors. And so he's kind of showing us, hey, there is a dilemma. I want to make it clear for you. In chapter 1, he demonstrates that we, the human race, have been the recipients uh, of a thing called sin that produced a thing called death. In chapter 2, uh, he shows that the people of God at that time, the Jewish people, who believed that they were immune to that because they had God's instructions, it turns out their capacity to live up to God's instructions uh, was non-existent. And so they were as condemned by this viral reality of sin and its expression of death uh, as the people that didn't know God. And then in chapter 3, as he kind of solidifies for all of us, listen, the, the sin problem is not a behavioral problem. It's not whether we behave rightly or wrongly or how much we behave rightly versus how much we behave wrongly that determines whether we are good or bad, sinful or not. Uh, it is a viral problem. Something came into our human story and it has impact on us, period. And its impact in part is this fruit of behavior that uh, is sometimes okay and sometimes not okay. And then in chapter 3, remember that he begins uh, to demonstrate to us that the solution to our viral uh, problem is not something we can come up with ourselves. It is something that will have to come from some force that is external and he presents on the table the great redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And he goes, look, the solution is the great redemptive work of Jesus. This is what God has done for us on our behalf to rescue us. And then as he walks into the rest of chapter 3, into chapter 4, into chapter 5, he's beginning to unpack now why that's the, the case, how that's the case, and what all of it really means. Paul is on a track. I'm going to get a little ahead for a second, so don't worry. In 2023, we'll, we'll get to this section of Romans. But let me just jump there real quick. Uh, where Paul is taking us, just so you know what the big picture is. is All the way from chapter 1 to chapter 11, he's unpacking the extraordinary wonder of God's mercy. The extraordinary wonder of what God has done for us. The extraordinary wonder of the life that is available to us through Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, he's going to say, Therefore, in view of all this mercy of God, 
Now you can present yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. So all of this is gearing up to an idea that says we humans, when we encounter the mercy of God fully, that is how we are designed then to respond. We respond out of an encounter with the mercy of God. So we are in the process of encountering the mercy of God. And we are going to find ourselves in awe as we see it more broadly, more deeply, more wondrously. And that's kind of where we're at. Most recently in chapter 5, God began to unpack through Paul the implications to us on this great redemptive work of Jesus. Remember chapter 5 verse 1, you have now been justified, made right by Christ. That you therefore have access to God. Whoa, are you, uh, how insane. And in that access, you have access to his grace. All your access to God will be a, an unfolding wave of grace over grace over grace over you as you recognize the wonder of what it means that you have access to God. And all of this uh, leads us uh, to great hope. And he, he says in chapter five, folks, what all that means is this. You were once against God, you are now at peace with God, the creator and sustainer of all the universe, the great judge of all things. You're at peace with him. Wow, that's incredible. And then you remember we came uh, through chapter five, the rest of it, and he started unpacking. If Jesus came for us while we were stabbing him in the back and hating him and throwing grenades at him, how much more, now that he's reconciled us to himself, will he not stand with us, love us, save us, rescue us? Our hope is secure. But he had gotten ahead of himself, right? Because we're still talking about reconciliation. He's saying, since we're reconciled, this is true. And then he goes like this, oh, oh but, but reconciliation's super cool too. So we're going to go back to reconciliation and how that worked and why that had to work the way that it did. Why is Jesus the solution? Why does he need to be the only solution? Or why can he be the only solution? And that's what Paul's about to do in the rest of chapter 5 now. So let's grab our Bibles and let's go take a look at what we're going to encounter today as we continue to expand our clarity of the mercies of God. All right, so Romans chapter 5, we're going to be in verse 12. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 page 1043 if you're using one of the Bibles that you grabbed on the way in. If you're using a smart device or one of your own Bibles, Romans chapter 5 verse 12. Now, the passage we're about to get into, if you were just reading it by yourself, doing your devotions, going through Romans, and you encountered this passage, this passage at first encounter will seem awfully complex, okay? It's got a lot of complex ideas and thoughts, and it's tying all sorts of weird relational dynamics together, and you kind of read it, and you're like, I'm not really sure what it means. It's like got all sorts of stuff in it, and the reason it seems so complex at first is because in the culture that Paul is writing, all of the foundational uh, pieces of clarity that you would have needed for this passage not to be complex, you already had because you had a rich, deep Jewish history understanding the complexities and intricacies of the Old Testament. And so you would have read this and it would have made a lot uh, more sense back then uh, at first read than it will at first read now. But once you understand some of that reality, then this passage moves from being super complex to, guess what? Super simple. And it actually unpacks a beautiful, simple, wondrous truth that I have no doubt will shape your lives as it has shaped mine. So let's go take a look what Paul's about to do. 
So he's coming out of five. Reconciliation is a really big deal. I kind of got ahead of myself, but let's go back to reconciliation. And remember verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So he's like, oh yeah, that's awesome. But we also rejoice in reconciliation. Therefore, let's talk about reconciliation. So the next word, therefore, let's talk about reconciliation. Verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world, through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is, no, is not counted where there is no law, yet, you see what I'm saying? You're like, hold, hold, I'm reading with you, but I have no idea what you mean, because you're like, and then sin came in the one man, and then the sin is there everywhere, and then they did law, it doesn't, but it's not counted, and then it is counted, and I don't know, where is it? You see why I said this is a little complex? So let's break this down and walk through it piece at a time. Verse 1, very simply, uh, not verse 1, verse 12, what Paul is saying here is that sin came into the world through one man. Why is that important? It's what he's been telling us from chapter one all the way to now. Because again, if our idea is that sin is only present when I behave badly, then we're going to, we're going to assume that if I can just simply figure out how to behave better, that I can have a part in eliminating the sin problem. You with me? So sin then is you might have it, you might have it, you might have it, I might have it, you might not have it, you might not have it, you might not have it, depending on how well you've conformed. But here's what he's saying. No, 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 no. Sin is not something that you do and then you are the recipient of death. Sin is something you received through one man already. You see how he's changed it from something we do to ourselves to a viral reality we have been the recipients of. You see the difference there? So Paul is solidifying the reality of sin here so that we don't think that the problem can be solved any other way than through the redemptive work of Jesus. Sin came into this world to all people through one man's active disobedience. That's what happened. And look what it says this. It says this. It spread to all men because all sinned. So why does he say it spread to all men because all sinned? Is he saying... You see, you didn't have it, then you sinned, then it came to you. Now he's saying this. We know it spread to everybody how? Because they all sinned, right? I mean, everybody is born manipulating. You're like, what? Have you ever watched a child when they're born? I mean, that child... You, you read the parenting books, and the first six months are critical in how you handle the child because you're either confirming for them that they can manipulate you the rest of their lives, or you're showing them that you're the boss and they're not. That's the first six months, and they can't even talk or eat or poop on a toilet, right? You're like, come on, you can sin, but you can't do anything that keeps you actually alive. So here's what Paul's saying, dude. Sin spread to all men, and we know this because all men have sinned, right? You with me? Okay, I'll take a look at this. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not countered where there is no law. Now, that's an odd verse because it's almost like Paul saying sin was present in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted against you if you have no law. So what you would think Paul is trying to say is, whoo! 
before the law came, the people that had sin, they were okay. But then God gave us the law, and then sin was counted against us, and then we were dead. But you see, that's not what he's saying at all. Because of the next sentence, here's what he's saying. I want to show you that sin is in the human story before you ever behave badly, okay? So that you don't think sin came because you made a mistake. Sin was there, and it's what causes all of the stuff coming out of us. One, babies, they manipulate you. All the people do, the adults do, everybody. So we know sin is present because it's present. Number two, sin was present before the law. Because before the law came, nobody even knew that they had sin. Nobody even understood what sin was. Nobody, nobody was like, oh, I did a bad thing. I did a good thing because they didn't have any structure. And yet, look at this. Yet, look at the next verse. Yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses. So here's what he's saying. Before the law came and gave us a vision for what sin was so that we would even know that we're sinning, did people live or die? Oh, they died. They died. So the fruit of sin, which is death, was present before the law was present, which means that sin is not a problem when we become aware of it. Sin is a problem because it's a problem. And we die, whether we like it or not, whether we're aware of it or not, whether we know it or not, sin is in us and we die. And so if you have the law, great, you die with the law. If you don't have the law, great, you die without the law. But death is coming your way one way or the other because sin is present. You see what Paul's trying to do here? Guys, the sin problem's a big deal and you can't solve it. And it came through one man into all of us. Now look at this. <clears throat> Here's where he kind of nails down this idea of sin. Even a reign from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. What does that mean? So death reigned in even those who didn't sin like Adam sinned. See, in the context here, he's saying before the law came, people didn't even know what sin was, yet they also experienced the fruit of sin, which was bad behavior and death. Because remember, even uh, before the flood occurred, this was before the law, before Tower of Babel, remember what happened to humanity in their sin? They became so evilly, uh, evil, uh, inclined to evil that God had to start from scratch in many ways. Not quite from scratch. He preserved us in Noah, but he had to save us from ourselves with the great flood because we were self-destructing. And that was before we had the law. So sin did its work both in behavior and in, in death uh, across the board. So here's what he's saying. Look, here's the deal. Sin has been present all along, law or no law, awareness or no awareness. It's been having its impact and, and here's the deal. In this particular verse, as we said, this is true even when the trespass was not like Adam's. What was Adam's trespass? Did Adam know what he was doing when he and Eve decided to go taste of the fruit? Oh, yes. Did they have the commands of God? Oh, yes. Were they tainted already by the viral disease of sin, therefore tempted easily and falling easily because their flesh was against them? No. Were they at war with their own flesh? No. Did they have an environment that had, was full of trauma, so it affected trauma in them, so the amygdala fired wrongly so that they would do it wrongly? For all of you, those that know trauma, you know what I just said. And, and no. He was in a perfect environment, in a perfect body, with perfect flesh, without sin, and he knew what to do and what not to do. And what did he do? What did he and Eve go do? They sinned. So before the law came, were the trespass of those after Adam the same as Adam's? Nope, because they were in a body of flesh. They had all sorts of trauma going on in their heads. They, they, they were full of the viral reality of sin. They didn't even know what was right or wrong. They didn't know God. They hadn't encountered him in the Garden of Eden. They hadn't walked with him, hadn't lived with him, and he hadn't told them what not to do. 
And so here's what he's saying. Even though their transgression was not like Adam's, it was in an unawareness covered in a body of sin, guess what sin still did to them? Killed them. So that's a problem, isn't it? This is not a problem of awareness. It's not a problem of overcoming. It is just what we have, right? Now look at this. Look at this. Who was a type, so not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Okay, so what are we getting into here? This is the moment where Paul is transitioning now and saying, I've laid all this out so that you understand how sin came into our human story because I'm about to lay out for you why Jesus is the only solution to this problem. You with me? That's what this has been building to. So now he says, Adam was in some ways a type to us humans like Jesus will be. What he means by this, and I'm giving you a bit of information ahead of time so that you are kind of caught up, is this. In the same way that when we are in Christ, we receive the realities of who Christ is because Christ is kind of a covenantal head for us, so too we can be in Adam and receive the realities of Adam because Adam was created in perfection with a perfect uh, relationship with God and without the realities of sin. And he had every reason to choose obedience or disobedience, unlike us who have been enslaved by sin from the second we're born and we do not choose disobedience or obedience, we are just enslaved by sin. So we do what our master tells us, our flesh and our sin. So Adam, like the one we're about to talk about, is a type like him in that what he did, he did on behalf of us, and we are the recipients of. In the same way that Jesus, what he is about to do, he will do on behalf of us, and if we are recipients of it, then we belong to him. And we are in Christ versus in Adam or sin. Okay, you with me so far? Okay, so he's setting it up. Here we go. But the free gift is not like the trespass. Well, when you read that, that sounds pretty obvious, doesn't it? Jesus' gift to us is not like the trespass. And you would first think what he means by that is that Adam sinned and Jesus didn't. So that's not the same, is it? Uh, Not sinning is not the same as sinning, is it? But that's not what he means here. He's about to show us Not how they differ, but how they differ in magnitude and in power. And the reason he's doing that is because he wants to set us up again to walk out of here going, my hope is beyond imagination. Okay, you ready? Here we go. Watch this. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus, abounded for many. So here he sets us up. What I'm about to do for you is show you how the work of Adam and its, its giant impact, that that work was small and the giant impact giant, Jesus' work for us was not small, it was giant, and its impact is unthinkable. So he's about to go like this. Adam, oh, what a mess. Jesus, okay? The free gift is not like the trespass. It's not an equal. It's not like Adam did one thing, we got condemnation. Jesus did the other opposite thing, and we got life. It's not like that. This is not comparable. This is extraordinary. Watch what now he's going to unpack it. Watch. 
And the free gift, verse 16, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For, here it is, the judgment following, pay attention now, one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? Okay, here it is. You ready? This is so awesome. So sorry. I get really excited about this stuff. So here's the deal, right? Here's what he's saying. Think this through. If Adam did one little thing wrong, one little trespass, one little moment. He had one moment of disobedience. That's all it took, right? He's doing well, he's doing well, he's great. One decision, that's one moment that is opposed to God. And that one moment, that one decision, that one trespass brought about death and condemnation for all, right? Then think about the opposite of that. You would think Jesus did the opposite. What Jesus did is he came and he obeyed and then he undid our condemnation and death. So first of all, let's just equal the playing field this way. Okay, this isn't even the big awesome stuff. This is just a little teeny, teeny piece. Ready? Okay, how hard is it for you and I to take life? Leave someone dead. That's what I'm trying to say. Now, you all don't want to answer, do you? Because like, I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I could do it. I'm not talking about like whether you want to or not, or whether you have motives or not. Let's pretend none of us want to kill anybody, which isn't true. But let's just pretend that, okay? <laughs> um, then I would still ask the question, how hard is it to? If you had to, right? I mean, you could throw a chair at me right now and I could die, right? So, and taking somebody's life or something's life is not hard. So Adam did something and it took life away. How hard is that? Not, not super hard. How hard is it to give life back? Just out of curiosity. Anybody here? Well, on Thursday I did. It was a little hard, but I did it. There was a lizard. It died, and then I looked at it and touched it, and it was walking again. It wasn't dead. It was sleeping, okay? Just so you know. Okay, so here's the deal, right? Do you see how automatically, just in, in basic logic, you, you already sort, sort of go, to produce death is something we humans can do. But to produce life out of death is something we humans can't. You with me? What did Adam do? He produced brokenness out of goodness. Death out of life. Right? What did Jesus do in his work? He produced life. Out of what? Death, you would think so, but that's not true. See, that's what Paul's about to show us. Here's what he's saying. You think Adam went life to death and Jesus went death to life. And that would be big enough. But Jesus didn't go death to life. Adam went life to death. That's accurate. There was life and then he acted and behaved foolishly. And then he brought death through one trespass. Out of curiosity, since Adam's trespass, how many trespasses have there been? Oh, you just lost it, didn't you? Can you count the stars? Can you count the grains of the sand? They are a joke in comparison to the trespasses of humanity, right? How many motives, how many dark hearts, how many, how many weighty realities of sin? You see, it says that Jesus, when he came, he took on the sin of what? The whole stinking world. 
right? All the generations and realities of sin, the entire force of darkness that had expanded and built over the beautiful millennia that we existed, feeding ourselves with sin, running after the darkness. You see, here's the thing. Here's the other thing. Life to death, there's no force against that. Are you with me? There's no force against life to death. You want to go life to death? No one's trying to stop you, right? But when you're trying to take something dead and bring it to life, there is an actual force according to scripture against that. There is an enemy of God against anyone that is trying to bring life from death. So here's the deal. Adam had no opposition in his disobedience. You want to do it? Sure. Oh, death, right? But when Jesus comes to bring life, what does he face? He doesn't face death. He faces anti-life. There's a difference. Catch the difference. Death is a neutral. Something is dead. It is neutral. And if I happen to have the power to bring it back to life, I can do that. But anti-life is a force. And the reality is what Scripture describes is that there is a force of darkness, a force of death that is a living, breathing force. It is tangible and it is against anyone or anything that is going to try to bring life to death. It is against us as the church as we walk out there to be redemptive. It is harder to go out there and be redemptive in unredeemed places than it is to go in unredeemed, redeemed places, isn't it? You can go, get, go make a mess of anything out there. It's super easy. But try to go take a mess and fix it. It's super hard. And then if you think as the church, if we're going to be redemptive, we are told we have an enemy who is against us in that. And so we don't just face the unredeemed mess. We face the one who doesn't want us to redeem it. Then he is against us. And before we could ever be the church empowered by the Holy Spirit and we were just dead in our sin, Jesus walked onto this planet, not into death to bring life, but into anti-life to overcome it so we might have life again. What Paul's trying to say is, dude, Dude, the free gift is nothing like the trespass. The trespass was a cakewalk. And when he did it, it was one. And when he did that one, it affected condemnation for all. What Jesus had to do to overcome anti-life is beyond human imagination. So if what Adam did, that little dumb thing, could affect a reign of death, throughout human history and into eternity, then how much more will the great work of Jesus overcoming anti-life to life not affect life for you into eternity? See what he's saying? You're a little afraid. You, you doubt a bit that maybe uh, because you blew it again or you're not as nice as you're supposed to be or you, you didn't do this thing for God that somehow he's super disappointed and going, oh my gosh, why did I save you? See, we're back where we were last week. What Paul's trying to do is the mercy of God is bigger than you think, stronger than you think. And it ain't about you and what you do well or don't do well. It's about him and what he did well and does well. And so here's the deal. If Jesus could overcome anti-life to bring life, now that he's brought you life, church, how much more will he not hold you in that life? Our hope is secure because our Savior is giant. And that's what Paul's trying to say. But it gets better. Okay, take a look at this. Therefore, look at this now. Therefore, verse 18. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, 
So one act of righteousness led to justification and life for all men. Now, when we talk all men here, just a quick little note, because you could get confused and see all men, all men, and so sin transfers to the whole human race, and then uh, Jesus takes care of the whole human race, but then we read other parts of Scripture and we realize there's this whole reality of, of, of uh, believing, knowing, accepting Christ, and, and if you belong to him or don't belong to him, so how is this all men? Paul uses language throughout the book of Romans and in other places, uh, but especially in the book of Romans because of the context where he is dealing with the reality of the Jewish people and the Gentile people thinking of themselves as two completely separate human groups. They're not even the same, right? So here's what he's saying. This great work of sin was for who? The Gentiles or the Jews? All men. And this great work of redemption is for who? The Gentiles or the Jews? All men. You see what he's saying? Look, just as sin came to all people, including the Jewish nice people of that time, so the redemptive work of Jesus is for all people, including the jerk Gentiles. You with me? That's what he's saying. Now look at this. Look at this. Watch this. For as by one man's disobedience, 19, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now watch this. Uh, this is cool. Now. See, he's ready now. Well, you use the word now when you're like, okay. You got all that? Are you like giddy? Okay. Now. Now. Watch what that means. Watch what that means. Now. I lost my place. There you go. Now. <laughs> the law came in to increase the trespass. Huh. See, now we're back to the law, and now, now it's super weirded out again. See, that's why I said if you read this uh, first time, it's a little complex, right? Now, the law came in to increase the trespass. This would have been shocking to the Jewish people, and here's why. Because if indeed sin is behavioral, and the less we behave sinfully, the less sinful we are, if that's true, which it's not. But if it is, then you would think, right, when the law comes in and gives you the right behaviors and you start following them, if you, if you behave in a way that's less sinful, then you are less sinful. So what would the law then by nature do, would you think, increase sin or decrease sin? You guys are like, oh, is that a trick question? No, it's not a trick question. If behavior, less sin means less sin, and the law tells you how to live rightly and you live rightly, are you sinning less or more? Less. So the law would decrease the trespass, right? But sin is not a behavioral issue, so when the law came, it didn't decrease the trespass. It exposed the trespass, and so the trespass increased because before we weren't aware, now we are aware, but we can't fix the problem, so we only are aware of how bad the problem is. So what did the law do? It increased the trespass, which is why we now understand in our humanity why we hate the law so much, why we hated the light so much. You know why? Because we were living in our craziness, and we were perfectly content in our insanity, and then the law came along, and Jesus came along, and the light came along, and it what? Exposed us. And when you are exposed in your depravity, what is the natural byproduct of that exposure? Shame and fear, right? Welcome to humanity. You're fine until somebody shows you what's actually going on. Then you're like, ah! And so we hide from the light, we hide from the law because the law produces shame and fear because it increases the trespass. That is true 
until you experience the redemptive work of Jesus. Now something else happens that's mind-blowing. Watch this. So, the law still does that. It, as we face the scriptures, as we get to know God, as we realize who he is, it certainly exposes us, and we realize what's actually been going on. And it used to bring shame and fear, but now look at this. Where the law came it, uh, to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord, what, what, is, he, what is he saying here? Okay, uh, in the Jewish world, if the, if the light exposed the sin and you behaved better, then you were less sinful, you felt better about yourself, and all was well. So the Gentiles were in bad shape and the Jews in good shape. But what we're learning now is no, sin is a viral problem. When it is exposed and your, and your actions are exposed, the reality is there is no solution, so shame and fear kicks in. So what do we do? In our typical church experience, we have a way we handle this, and it's not the right way, okay? But it is the typical way, and it leads to pretense and a world that isn't authentic and isn't vulnerable, which is what most of our churches feel like, right? The real world out there calls us hypocritical. That's what they call it, because they're like, oh, no, no, you, you look one way there for all your people, but then when you're out here, you're only looking that way, right? And so that, that's, why is that? Watch this, okay? So... Before we come to know Jesus, here's our understanding. God is holy. Now, we don't know this. We're going to encounter this in the cross. But God is holy, and we are sinful, okay? So we come to realize this when the exposure comes. So you're going along, you're sinful, and God is holy. And then you, you realize there's a gap between your sinfulness and God's holiness. This is gospel 101, right? Sinful, holy, gap, gap problem. Okay, then we encounter the cross of Jesus Christ. And we are told that the great redemptive work of Jesus overcomes the gap. So you're looking now at a picture on the screen and you're seeing this picture, right? God's holiness, our depravity or our sinfulness, the cross overcomes the gap, right? Then after we become a Christian, we get pulled into the church and we say, now that you know Jesus, now we're going to tell you how to behave really well. You're going to read the Bible. It's going to tell you all the things you used to do before you knew Jesus, the very bad things. And now you can do the good things. And so we call that sanctification. We begin to become more like Jesus. But we equate it this way. You are now going to begin to behave more and more like you ought and look more and more like Jesus. And so that becomes the goal, right? I'm going to do that. And so as I behave better and look more and more like Jesus, God's holiness remains the same. I get better and better and better. You see that? Isn't that awesome? It's getting better and better. And what happens to the cross? Gets smaller and smaller. Do you ever wonder why people often say who've been believers a long time, you know, when I first encountered the cross, it was so big, so exciting, so vibrant. I was ready to run into all the world, including China, Africa, South America, and Alaska, and go preach the gospel to everyone. I would go to my school campus and tell the whole world, I follow Jesus. It was awesome. And then I was in the church for 10 years being discipled, and now the gospel's boring and the cross is small, and I'm really not sure I want to share my faith and my work place because it's very awkward. <laughs> I encounter this all the time. In fact, it was part of my own personal journey. The longer we're a Christian, the less exciting it gets. There, there's the picture. You got it? This is the wrong picture, folks. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Here's what Paul's saying. 
about why the law is such a gift in its exposure of sin, increasing our trespass and how that trespass increases our grace. So we start with the beautiful uh, holiness of God and our sinfulness, okay? Then we encounter the cross and we realize there's an actual gap. That's when we come awake. <gasps> and so we receive Jesus as our savior. Then the church goes, I want you to get to know God like you've never known him before. The point isn't to preach or learn a behavior modification that will help you behave better now that you're a Christian so that you can show people that you are a behaving Christian. The point is to discover the wonder of God like you've never known it because you couldn't before you knew Jesus, but you sure can now. And so as we dig into the wonder of God, what happens to God's holiness? See, when you encountered the cross and we said God was holy, you had an idea in your head of what that was. There's holy, it's not me. And here's me, okay, gap's this big. But as you get to know God, what happens? Oh, he's holier than I thought. Oh, oh, he's holier than I thought. Year six, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, God's holier than I thought. Year nine, oh, God's justice is mind-blowing. I just read Romans, it's unbelievable. Okay, year 12, oh, God's mercies beyond comparison. Year 14, God's heart for humanity and his, oh. God's holiness just keeps getting better and better as we get to know him because it's bigger than you will be able to realize in a lifetime. And as we get into this book, oh, that's how I live too. Wow, it's worse than I thought. <laughs> oh, wow, I still do that. That's worse than I thought. Oh, that addiction I had, I thought Jesus would take it from me. Day three, but it's day 4,712 and I'm still struggling with it. Oh, oh, I just gossiped again. Ah, oh, that person just walked by in a pretty dress and I looked. Oh, I mean, you can go on and on and on, right? And we start realizing that this is a giant wrestle and it's super hard and death seems to be raining more than life. And we're like, what am I going to do? And that's the point. You went, what? No, not to behave badly. We do begin to become more like Jesus in our behavior, but our clarity increases on the depth of our sin. That's the journey of scripture. I want to show you how bad it really was. And I want to show you how good God really is. Because the more you get that, something awesome happens. You see, for me, it happened a number of years ago in theory, and then over the last five years in practice, right? A number of years ago, I was watching a documentary on the Congo, and uh, there were these people in, this in these villages, and this, these, these men would come in with uh, swords and, and machetes and, and guns, and they'd come into these villages, and they would pillage the village. And then what they would do is they would take the women and children, and they would do things to them that we don't even dare speak in a place like this. Terrible, terrible things. The kinds of things that are so anti even what we think of as human, because we think wrongly of what it means to be human, but anti that you're just like, how can anyone be capable of those atrocities? And I remember thinking that thought, how can anyone be capable of those atrocities? And God came and sat next to, next to me on the couch. What's up? How's the documentary? It's good. I don't even understand. And God goes, yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Oh, I didn't have that. It's not that weird for me. But that's how my brain works. God begins to speak, right? And here's what God says to me. Hey, Renault, 
If, if you were in a little village in the middle of the Congo and you were six years old and you were out playing in the field and you saw this light in the sky, and it landed on your village and there was a big light and you ran back to your village and it turns out it was a missile from somewhere, who knows where, and it hit your village and your mom and dad and three sisters died. And while you were standing in that very village, in that very moment, a truck rolled in with very big, strong-looking men on it that looked vibrant and warrior-like, and they seemed mad. And they were mad about whoever shot the missile, and they had guns, and they said to you, come here, was that your family? Get in here. We're going to go find those people and fight them. And then you go with these men because you're like, what just happened? You're six. And they take you off to some place. And over a period of about six or seven years, they indoctrinate you with the realities of war and violence. And they tell you that real men fight all of that. And as that increases in you, one day they bring somebody to you and you're now about 13. And they say, this person, uh, he's not following the rules. Kill him. And you're nervous, but you're now part of the group. And all your little other buddies are like, come on. And you're like, okay. And you shoot the guy. And it feels super hard and super good all at the same time because celebrated and stuff. By the time you're 17 and you're rolling into a village with those men, think you have any problem doing those atrocities to people? You don't, you don't think that by that time you'll be so, so dark and so lost that you would do that in a heartbeat? And I had to sit on that chair and I had to know that my capacity for those very actions is as real as theirs. That is the exposure of light. And what that should bring is shame and fear. But if you're redeemed in Christ, do you know what that does next? You recognize your depravity more. You know God's holiness more. What happens the very next thing? <gasps> the cross is bigger than I thought. See, when I encountered the gospel... 20 plus years ago, now that I stand here, it seems so small to me. I knew nothing when I found the gospel. I just knew he bridged a gap. That was cool. Now I know what it really means. And I'm more excited about the cross than I have ever been, about Christ's work than I've ever been. In the last five years, I stepped into the world of trauma in my home and the beautiful reality of the collision of four kids to four kids in my beautiful home with my eight kids. And now I have seven teenagers and a 10-year-old, and that, no matter how you swing it, is a ball of trauma, isn't it? It's just awesome. They're good teens. They're great kids, but they are teens. And so they were built by God during this season to be independent, and the enemy corrupted their independence, and so we call it fighting back and talking back all the time, right? And so I love my kids, and I, I deal with that, but here's the deal. During the last five years, I have felt things, I have said things that I never knew I was capable of feeling and saying. I have felt things toward my children that I didn't know a parent was allowed to or was capable of feeling toward their children. <laughs> you go, ah, that's funny. No, no, I like legitimately felt those things. And I had to hold myself uh, before I did something stupid, right? And I'm like, me, like I'm preaching to a church. I'm a pastor. I know Jesus. And this feeling is real. And God would whisper and go, man, quite a thing, this sin thing, isn't it? The beauty of this passage is this. Folks know that sin came into the world through one man, and we are all the recipients of sin. 
And know that it is only through the great and mighty and unthinkably powerful work of Jesus that he would be able to face the force of anti-life itself and overcome sin so that we might have life. If he's done that, then how much more can you not be confident that he will hold you no matter how much you make it or don't make it, do well or don't do well, succeed or fail? He's got you. Because you never got him, he came, got you. So he's got you. He could overcome anti-life. He certainly can hold you now that life is present. And, by the way, now that you know that's true, whenever the enemy comes to you and goes, oh, you're horrible, you go, yep, sure am. Bring it on. What? Uh, No shame and fear present right now. Why not? Because the more I recognize my depravity, the more beautiful the work of Jesus becomes. So, you got anything else to accuse me with? Because I need more. And the accuser loses his power because every time he accuses, we simply go, guilty as charged, the grace of God increases. And so, where the trespass increases, so there the grace of God increases. Does this mean we should sin more? No, because we know Jesus now. We should live in holiness more. But does this mean we should have the courage to stare deeply into the heights of our sin capacity? Yes. And God's holiness? Yes. And the wonder of his redemptive work? Yes. Welcome to the gospel. Let's pray. God, you're good beyond what we even know now. I mean, here we stand and we're like, oh my gosh, you're, you're gooder than I thought. And yet, you are more than that because we have not yet lived long enough to know how good you really are, how holy you really are, how extraordinary you really are, how amazing you really are. And yet, as we travel on this planet and face the realities of our sinful viral disease that once enslaved our souls and now only enslaves our flesh and our souls are free and alive in you, as we wrestle between soul and flesh and are aware of the residual realities of what sin has done. And as we look at the world and see the carnage that sin produces, we are only in greater awe as our darkness is exposed of the great work of redemption that bridged the gap between our sin and your goodness. May you increase the cross every day for us by allowing us to feel comfortable in entering your word for more exposure of our sin, to step into mission for more exposure of our sin, to dare to dig into our own souls for more exposure of our sin, because we know that where the law increases the trespass, there the grace will increase all the more. And as we discover these things, may you empower us through your Holy Spirit to conform not any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we might live in a manner that honors you and brings freedom to us and to the world in your redemptive ways. God, you blow our minds. Thanks for showing us all this. We stand in awe of your mercy and worship you now in Jesus' name. Amen.